Welcome to National Gallery of Art Music Programs, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of the art of music. The rich contributions of African Americans to music have been frequently highlighted by the Music Department of the National Gallery of Art. In February 2008, the gallery was honored to present Celeste Headley, a soprano who is the granddaughter of the eminent African American composer William Grant Still. Her recital, which consisted entirely of Still's music, is introduced by Gallery Music Department head Stephen Ackert and Music Program Specialist Danielle Deswert Hahn, who was the pianist for that recital. This podcast gives me an opportunity to introduce people to a very valuable fellow worker at the National Gallery Music Department, Danielle Deswert Hahn. Danielle joined me on the music staff in 2006 and has been extremely valuable to the undertakings of the department ever since, not only because she's a very skilled and diligent worker, but also because she is a skilled and experienced collaborative pianist. And she has brought both of these skills to bear in her work for the National Gallery. The program that we're going to be listening to in a few minutes was actually brought to the gallery by Danielle, And Danielle, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that came about. Well, Celeste and I went to graduate school together in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, back in the late 90s. And when we were scheduling African-American history programs, it occurred to me that Celeste was uh, always promoting her grandfather's music. And we had done several of his works on her graduate recitals. And a few years after we finished school, we also did a recording together of some of his music for children. So I contacted her, and she had this particular program in which she kind of talks about his life and his music and performs his music chronologically. seemed like a perfect program for one of the gallery's concerts. I understand you still keep up contact with Celeste. What's she doing now? We do. Uh, She is an active journalist for NPR and was in Detroit for a long time working on the radio there, and now she's in the New York area. In this program, Celeste Headley is singing songs written by her grandfather, William Grant Still, who was one of the truly prominent African-American composers in the 20th century. He was born on May 11, 1895 in Woodville, Mississippi, but moved shortly thereafter to Little Rock, Arkansas. He attended Wilberforce University and the Oberlin College Conservatory of Music before moving to New York to launch his musical career. In New York, he found success as an arranger and orchestrator, writing for W.C. Handy, Willard Robinson, Artie Shaw, Sophie Tucker, Don Voorhees, and Paul Whiteman. Still also studied with George Chadwick and with the ultra-modernist composer Edgar Varese. Still wrote more than 150 works, including symphonies, ballets, operas, chamber pieces, and vocal works. And it's from that last category that Celeste Headley selected a recital of songs which he wrote between 1923 and 1958. She also told the audience about the songs, so we'll turn the program over to her at this point. I'm going to start with a piece called Brown Baby, which actually he probably never would have wanted me to sing. Um, When he first got to New York, it was the heart of the Great Depression, and he made his living writing Tin Pan Alley tunes and writing arrangements for W.C. Handy. He actually did the very first arrangement of the St. St. Louis Blues for W.C. Handy. And this is a piece called Brown Baby that he wrote under a pseudonym. The name on the piece is Willie M. Grant. Um, And he wanted it to be forgotten so that, you know, when he was this distinguished, serious composer, nobody would know that he wrote stuff like this. But I like it, so I sing it all the time.
not grow up hearing a lot of spirituals except in one particular case, and that was his grandmother, who was a slave. She had six different children by about four different white men, um, including his mother. And so his grandmother used to sing spirituals around the house all the time, and my grandfather thought that was just low music. Um, but he grew up, and as he grew to appreciate more of the sounds, he of course became one of the very, very first composers to ever incorporate spirituals and, and original blues tunes into classical music. So this is one of his early ones. There was actually a, a writer called Ruby Berkeley Goodwin who wrote out the stories, what she imagined to be the stories of a, a whole bunch of spirituals. There were 12 of them, and he arranged them for them. This is Listen to the Lambs. Listen to the lambs all a crying. Listen to the lambs all a crying. Listen to the lambs. of the Harlem Renaissance and his most famous symphony, the Afro-American Symphony, which is the first one to use a banjo, um, was considered to be the symphonic expression of the Harlem Renaissance. But he was in the Harlem Renaissance and not of it, if you know what I mean. But he was very, very good friends of most of the people that we often associate the Harlem Renaissance with. He had a long, lifelong <laughs> friendship with Langston Hughes, County Cullen, and many of the other writers that were there. Um, the next two pieces are two of his earliest art songs, when we think of the terms of the formal art song. The first one is by his very favorite poet of all time, which was Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And the second one was, of course, with Langston Hughes, and we're going to talk a bit more about his friendship with Langston Hughes after these two. But these are Winter's Approach and The Breath of the Rose. The sun and the wind Which way that cottontail went, he knew. 
as sad as Langston Hughes. Um, the next um, piece that we're going to do is actually part of the collaboration that he had with Langston Hughes. Langston had written a play about Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who was the first emperor, black emperor of Haiti, and the revolution that brought him into power, and then his downfall. And um, my grandfather wanted to set it to music, and so he wrote an opera called Troubled Island. And the story behind Troubled Island is, is, is kind of a microcosm of what was going on in the world at the time. Um, it was from 1938, and this was at a time, opera was my grandfather's great love, and he kept sending scores of operas to the Metropolitan Opera until finally, the Metropolitan Opera still to this day has not done an opera by a black composer. And they told him, stop sending scores. Don't bother. Um, what ended up happening, because my grandmother's a journalist, is that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt found out that there was problems getting things performed in certain car concert halls. And she and Mayor Fiera La LaGuardia decided they were going to make a concert hall where absolutely anything could be performed by anybody. And they created the New York City Center. And the very first music director of the New York City Center was a man named Laszlo Halas. And Laszlo Halas used to tell the story that he sat down to choose his first season and he had a stack of scores about this high. And he said, I guess I'll, I'm going to start with the one on the bottom. And he pulled it out, and he sat down at the piano and started to play it. And he said, this is the most beautiful, beautiful music I've ever heard. We're doing this. And his board said, Laszlo, you can't do that when it was written by a colored man. 
And he said, well, what color is he? I don't care. This is what we're doing. So the very first opera ever performed at the uh, New York City Center was Troubled Island by William Grant Still and Langston Hughes. It was an all-white cast, painted black. <laughs> um, but, and it did phenomenally well with the audiences. The critics panned it. it. The opera got something like 30 curtain calls on opening night. But the critics panned it, and it closed after a week. Um, and if you see, there's this terrible, terrible photograph of my grandfather that was taken shortly thereafter. There was a famous photographer who was trying to capture images of all the people of the Harlem Renaissance. But unfortunately, he took He'd been waiting for my grandfather to come out to New York from LA for a long time. And he finally took the photograph of my grandfather, but it was the day after his opera had closed. And it, it's, he's, he's devastated in, in, in the photo. And the Troubled Island became a turning point for my grandfather, in which he really truly did feel the effects of that ceiling that he was beating up against. And after Troubled Island, he did have a great deal of problems. I mean, he was championed by Leopold Stokowski and Howard Hansen and some really great people, but it, he was fighting a, a losing battle. So Troubled Island was a huge turning point from him. This is an aria from that um, opera, and it's called Tis Sunset in the Garland, Garden. One more um, note about Troubled Island is that it has never been done since. about only writing as much music as he needed to. He did not believe in long preludes unless you had something to say. <laughs> and he did not believe in long postludes unless you had something to say. You do not find a bunch of um, things for the pianist, and you don't find a lot of coloratura for the voice, because he wanted you to say what you had to say and get out. So that's something that you can really listen for. This There's five uh, poems in here. These are five of his favorite poems, Diligenzi, Langston Hughes, and Paul Lawrence Dunbar. He was good friends with Arnold Bolton and County Cullen 
for all of his life as well. So these are all poets that, except for Finito Li Marcelin, these are all poets that he knew quite well.
Back 
time getting things performed. And you have to understand that he was probably one of the most highly awarded composers this country has ever produced. Um, and yet, he suddenly found people saying, no, we absolutely not, don't even bother, we're not going to do any symphonies. So he started writing smaller pieces for bands. And then he wasn't getting any bands to do his work. And smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. Um, by the end of his life, he actually, Leopold Stokowski had him a job writing songs for elementary school textbooks. Um, and at one point, one of the publishers of the textbooks called up Leopold Stokowski and said, can you give us William Grant Still's number? We need to call him and tell him that something needs to be changed. And Stokowski, in his inimitable style, said, you do not tell William Grant Still to change a note of his music. Thank you. <laughs> um, but toward the end of his life, he, grandfather by necessity, uh, was writing smaller pieces. This is where you find a lot of his chamber works were composed a lot of his works for solo instruments or solo voice. Luckily for us, some of his chamber music is some of the best stuff he ever wrote. Um, this song we're about to sing is called, I'm about to sing, I'm about to sing two of them for you. One is called Grief and one is called Citadel by two different poets. And this comes from this period of time um, in the late 50s when he was just beginning to realize that he probably wasn't going to get a lot of orchestral work performed. Weeping angel with pinions trailing and head bowed
Minette Fontaine. Um, he wrote many operas, as I mentioned earlier. Opera was his great love, and that's what he wanted to do. He wrote an uh, opera called Bayou Legend that was actually the first opera by a black man that was ever televised. PBS televised that in 1983, I think. I was quite young. Um, but this is from Minette Fontaine, and Minette Fontaine is set in um, New Orleans, and the, the title character is an opera singer and she is a great diva. And she has been invited to perform at the house of one of the aristocrats in New Orleans. But when she gets there to sing for them, they treat her like a servant. They make her eat in the kitchen and um, come out to sing and then go back into the kitchen. And she is unbelievably offended. Um, and this is back towards the turn of the century. So she decides uh, that she's going to shock these petty aristocrats uh, by singing it extremely, at the time, um, I think the opera is actually set in the uh, 1860s, perhaps. She decides to sing this aria about having two different lovers that she can't choose between. So this is her revenge on the people in front of her, and they are, of course, duly stunned and shocked and send her straight back to the kitchen after she's done. Is 
actually written in 1941. But we've kind of come to the end of his story. This is the bare bones, as we know. My grandfather died in 1978. By the time he died, he was pretty much forgotten. Um, he thought he thought he had come into the world to bridge the gaps between the races. He wasn't just black. He was Native American and Scotch-Irish, and he was a whole mix of different races. And he thought that his music was going to help to bridge some of the gaps. By the time he died, he thought he had failed in that. Um, we now know that he didn't. I mean, William Grant still is the reason why so many other black composers were able to make that entry into classical music. He opened a number of doors um, that had remained closed, firmly, firmly closed for a very long time. And I want to make the point that he did not do that by himself, and he did not do that with just support of the black community. It was very powerful white people as well, sponsors and patrons and people like Stokowski and people like Howard Hansen who, um, really also helped to, go, to, to get him where he needed to go and support him all throughout his life. He was also, of course, very good friends with some of the great jazz writers, and he wrote, he probably could have made a very good living. We could have been well off by the time he passed away if he'd stayed in popular music. But uh, he wrote for um, Artie Shaw, he wrote for um, Paul Whiteman, and a number of other people. And a lot, of the no, a lot of the very familiar, recognizable tunes like Frenesy that Artie Shaw did were actually arranged by my grandfather. Um, but by the t end of his life, he, he felt like he was, he was forgotten by the time he died in 1978. It's only been after his death that his, his work, as so often happened, has really kind of come to the fore. Um, but his work is still there, and he, he did bridge the gap between the races to a certain extent. And so many things that are happening today that he could never have dreamed of in 1900 and 1920 are actually coming forward. The next step, though, is to stop singing his music only during Black History Month and <laughs> make sure that we have concerts. Obviously, this, is th this particular program is perfectly placed for Black History Month, but it needs to now become part of American history as well. I wanted to end with, this is uh, one of his very favorite spirituals. And you'll hear in the piano part, his wife, of course, was a concert pianist. So, the piano was the only instrument in the orchestra he could not play, and he didn't need to because his wife played so well. Um, the only problem was that she was a concert pianist, and she had this ridiculous, tiny woman, but she had the spread of her fingers. And we hear a lot, I hear a lot of complaints from people saying, because he would, didn't know how to play, he would say, Verna, can, is this playable? She'd say, oh yeah. So <laughs> um, oftentimes his, his piano parts are very orchestral because he was writing for her. This is here's one.
You've been listening to a National Gallery of Art Music Programs podcast.